Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. And Willow Walsh, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Organic Juice Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsjuicecafe.com. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Today we bring you two stories. First up, titled Lived Between Two Barriers, a story from the Welcome Project's archive. The format of the show is that we play a story from the Welcome Project archives. As Willow said today, that begins with Lived Between Two Physical Barriers. And then um, Willow and I will begin to have a conversation about the story based on like what sort of points the storyteller makes that really engaged our imaginations and things that we want to press into a little bit more deeply. And we hope that you'll be interested in that conversation too. Um, and then at the half hour, we'll, um, we'll play a second story and we'll, and we'll do the same thing again. Our first storyteller talks a little bit about his experiences growing up in the 60s across segregated neighborhoods in Gary, Indiana. Well, you know what, uh, during that period of time in, in the 60s, blacks lived uh, uh, between the expressway and the railroad tracks there at 9th and Broadway. And that's pretty much where we, we traveled in, in those, uh, between those areas. We would go to Glen Park occasionally when we wanted to go to the YNW, which is outdoor theater. Uh, we would go maybe to go to Burger King or some places like that. Uh, but we couldn't live in those neighborhoods. Because even, you know, as I think about now, um, in retrospect, uh, the downtown area was very segregated to a degree. Uh, blacks shopped down there, but we ate at certain places, and it was just established. It was almost like in the South, you know what you're supposed to, where you go and so forth. And so there was a place called Copper Cattle. We knew that we couldn't sit down and eat there. It was very, it was a really upscale place on the corner of 8th and Broadway. You could go in and order and take it out, but you couldn't sit down. So we knew that. I think I was too young to appreciate it. I mean, if it's the culture, if it's, if it's the, the mode of operandum, that's what you do, you know. And I was proud of Gary, and I didn't know how racist it was. My first experience with really dealing with uh, really racism was when I was 12 years of age, maybe 11 or 12, and my family doctor sent me to a specialist, and the specialist was in the Brunswick area. And my mom told me how to catch the bus uh, on Broadway and to transfer to get to this area. And I didn't have any difficulty getting there. But when I came out, because the streets intersect, and so when I came out, I was turned around. And I'm young. And so I'm trying to walk back to the bus stop. And I end up walking through what's now uh, what was called Waverly drive a wavy garden over in that area. It was like a project area, a white project area. And I'm going down these streets and I'm totally, I'm totally confused. I don't know where I'm going. And that was probably the first time I had been called a, that N-word. And I had heard it on, on television. I knew about it. But that was my first experience of doing it. So uh, these white boys came out and they called me the N-word multiple times. And they started throwing rocks at me. I had to run. I ended up way past my area, <laughs> and somebody found me because I was totally lost. 
because we didn't frequent those areas. We pretty much lived between two physical barriers. My first question is, um, where, where does the speaker note that like black residents lived in the 60s? Um, okay, so two physical barriers um, between the expressway and that would be on the southern side of the neighborhood and the railroad tracks at 9th and Broadway, which would be like the northern part then. And you and I, you know, we looked this up on Google Maps and it was about a 30 block length mm -hmm. of, um, of what I've heard called Midtown. I've also heard called Central District. Is that what you were thinking about, just kind of getting the logistics down? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we got about 30 blocks there. And so, well, he also says, like, we couldn't live in those areas. And I'm wondering, like, if you picked up on that, like, what is that? What does that mean? To not be able to live in other areas? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know from doing research on this that it's based in segregation. And so there's neighborhoods where, um, based on federal policies of like redlining and just even how the steel mill, when it, 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 it basically built the city of Gary, like put workers on, you know, one part together and the um, administration on the, you know, more like in the Miller Beach area. But even with the workers, they would be segregated typically by um, race or ethnicity. So oftentimes uh, the, the white ethnic immigrants would be placed in areas together. But I feel like his sense of like I, we couldn't go into those areas that's that's more like a social imposition so um for example i don't i don't know what a what a polish worker feel like they couldn't go into a serbian neighborhood i guess i'm assuming that wouldn't have been the case but i'm not actually 100 percent sure but it definitely seems like there was a clear um standard in the sick by the 60s at least for black residents that they're they're kind of rules or conditions under which you can go outside of your own neighborhood. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Because he's also talking about, like, right, He they are going outside of their neighborhood to some degree, right? Like they're going to Copper Kettle. And that, to me, like, I guess we don't know for sure. I guess he doesn't name it. Um, but, you know, he says, like, we, we're going to this restaurant, and that's a place that, you know, he couldn't necessarily, like, sit down to eat. So we know that there is some, like, movement outside of the neighborhoods a little bit, but, but it's definitely constrained by, by what you're calling, like, these, like, social impositions there. And he even names it, like, it's almost like the South. Yeah. That's what he says. And, and like, what is the almost part of that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's, like... Maybe, like, my thought there is when he's talking about it, it's almost like it's it's like the South in that I'm thinking, like, Jim Crow specifically. Like, he doesn't name that, but I, yeah. that's the gist that I'm getting from it. Um, but I, I think he says it's almost like it because it's almost like you wouldn't expect it to happen, like, uh. this far up. Like, we're so far up north, and you'd think, like, this isn't something that would be happening up here or... You know, like as somebody who's not privy to like what happened in the 60s, like you'd think it'd be a little more removed from that. It wouldn't be a similar experience. But like from what our storyteller says, it, it, it seems like a very similar experience. Well, the other thing I would add to that. OK, so that starts with and it was just established. It was almost like in the South. You knew what you were supposed to where you go and so forth. So. 
This is also going to be something we hear about in our second story, too. But I wonder about if um, the black residents who migrated up from the south to resettle in Gary, um, if they were bringing um, southern cultural expectations with them as well. So it was just established. So you knew when you were in the South where you couldn't couldn't go or how you could behave in a restaurant or couldn't behave, behavior is the wrong word. It's more like whether you could stay or whether you had to take your food with you. So it's, I I wonder if it's like almost like the South means in that case, um, we brought these practices with us in addition to they were expected of us. So there's this connection to that culture of the South that's being reproduced in the North. And I, I wondered what you thought, like, what does he mean by culture when he uses that term, if it's the modus operandi? Like, what's he getting at there? Yeah, I think it's like, I think, like, Jim Crow, that was more of, like, I mean, established, right, but there's, like, clearer lines drawn there and so I think when he defines it like pulls it out as like culture the modus operandi which I admittedly don't know the definition of but I can infer (laughs) that this means like just kind of like the idea of just like it's just what you do like it's not written down anywhere there's no like you there's probably not like a sign like there would be maybe in the south I don't know there could have been but it's like it's not written it's not in a law, it's just something that you're just kind of following. It's Well, it's what everybody else does, right? It's yeah. just like if you're seeing everybody else around you who looks like you, who lives in your community, doing, behaving like this, like going in, taking your food to go, not sitting down, you know, it just feels like, well, this is something that like my community does, right? Like this is, we go in there and take our food out and the white people go in and sit down and eat the food there. So it's just, it's something that these unwritten rules that everybody kind of follows. And so that's kind of what I, what I, think of there because he's not really defining it as like well you know speaking to like his childhood I think he's not as a child defining it as like this sort of like racism and segregation I don't think he's realizing that at that point it feels more of like you know this is just what's happening like this is how we go out and get dinner yeah it's funny because I often think of culture or if somebody asked me what culture was I would go to things like food and music and you know festivals and traditions but I think here it's um, it's like what we absorb without knowing what we're mm-hmm. absorbing until oftentimes we travel outside of our culture and then suddenly see people behaving in different ways. And we're like, well, that's different than what I learned. And then you begin to realize what you learned, you know. So like it's something you pick up more through osmosis, which I think is related to why he can end that section with I didn't know how racist Gary was. Um, If it's just something that you're, which I don't know, like just, I feel like there's something really important there, like as outside observers or his adult self looking back, we have this label of racist to help us understand the oppression that was happening, the discrimination that was happening, but that like from inside the experience, you're not giving it that label. And, And he can even say, I was proud of Gary which it makes you wonder as an adult, would he say he wasn't proud of Gary if he knew it was racist? So I think there's some interesting like space where like racism doesn't totally dominate your life, even as it informs it, because you can escape 
from its, I don't know, grips or whatever in ways that make you feel very proud of mm-hmm. your community, your neighborhood, your city, even as an, if as an adult, you're going to be critical of how it inhibited you. Yeah. Yeah, I think too, like, I guess there, there is this idea, right? So he is living in this neighborhood that he calls these two barriers. So it's between the railroad tracks and the expressway. And so I think there is something there, right? In terms of like, he's living like in a black community in a neighborhood. And this is how everybody is acting. Like this is the, the modus operandi, as he says, like in terms of like specifically at the copper kettle going in and getting your food, taking it out. And so I think you're right in that. It's just like, if you're not maybe privy to other experiences and you're not really like noting it and nobody I guess around you is like noting like noting it and I think there's like a an aspect of like taking a step back and like viewing it as this like whole thing that's happening of like why are we acting different like between the two people who are going into this restaurant yeah and so I think I think you're right like I think without naming it it doesn't it doesn't become as much of of a color to your experience as so much as we, well, we can infer that he talking about it as an older person reflecting on his childhood, he's kind of realizing that like taking a step back and can kind of see it a little bit more. But I think like naming that he's proud of Gary, like that's just symptomatic of his childhood, right? So he's just like, this is how he viewed it and this is how he felt at the time. And he didn't really have the, the, the space or the, the ability to take a step back and see it. Nobody else was really naming it. So yeah, I, I definitely think that was the case. Yeah, and I think the other way we know that racism isn't like totalizing, you know, like completely determining his life experience is because he says in the second part of this story, like I didn't really feel racism until I was 12, maybe, maybe 11, 12. And then he uses this experience of hearing the N-word and having rocks thrown at him when he's outside where he's the zone he's supposed to be. So that makes me think, like, apart from that experience, up and so the first 12 years of his life, he's, 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 um, he's not hearing the N-word in that demeaning, derogatory way. It's only something on TV. So there's this life that's going on that's protected from some of the kind of um, behavioral racism, you know, that we often think of when we hear the term racism, where you're actually demeaning an individual mm-hmm. for their race. So maybe it just, um, what do you, what do you think's going on in that moment when he's going to see the specialist? Like what features stood out to you from that story? Yeah, so, I mean, at first it's like, okay, so he, his family doctor sent him to a specialist, so he's going to the Brunswick area, which we can assume is outside of this neighborhood that, that he's living in. So he catches the bus, he goes down, he kind of gets turned around a little bit because, you know, he's talking about living between these two physical barriers, so once you leave and you go out to another neighborhood, I mean, it's probably really disorienting. And so he's kind of, like, walking around, he's not really sure where he's going, and then, right, he, you know, he confronts her is confronted by you know these white boys who are calling him the n-word and throwing rocks at him and so I think like I mean when you're talking before it kind of reminded me of this like there's this sort of like implicit and explicit racism like I don't know if that's like the right terminology Mm. there but like I think there's like an aspect of like it didn't feel like he encountered it like he doesn't name encountering racism until he's 12 because it it was 
it was sort of hard to see beforehand, I think. Like, with a, you know, it felt more like a cultural thing going into the restaurant and not being able right. to sit down. Well, when he gets off the bus and he gets rocks thrown at him and gets the N-word called at him, you know, it, it feels more uh, like a, of an attack, of an well, direct very attack. threatening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's too, like, I think one of them is harder to see without that step back that I was talking about. Like, this one, it's very in your face, right? It's like, it's not just like your community it's specifically you in this moment and not even just that it's like actual like harassment and like throwing rocks you know you could have gotten like hurt so i think there's like this this difference in being able to recognize it right like that's really easy to recognize and he even mentions talking about it on tv like that's something that that we even think of as racism that's easier to point to Right, right And then versus like this implicit that's just capping culturally that he doesn't recognize until later on. Yeah, I think that um, this is a really good story that illustrates uh, another way people talk about it is structural racism versus like this behavioral racism. And um, I've always thought the term structural racism, it makes it really hard and intangible to get to. Like if you were to explain it to somebody who had never heard that term before, well, what does that mean, structural racism? And somebody turned it around the other day for me and it was like race our society is structured by race which I thought was really interesting and you can see that in the first part of the story like the neighborhood in the city is structured by race like there's and I guess we would add ethnicity like there are places you can go and can't go because of race there are ways of eating that you can and can't do because of race Um, He doesn't mention this, but we know there's, like, loans you can get because of your race. And so it's like race is actually structuring the social space and um, social access, and it's not visible, right, which I think makes it – I mean, it's interesting because it makes it something you can live with and um, not know that it's impacting you or harming you – but it might be more long-lasting in terms of its damage, maybe not to you only as an individual or even to you as an individual. We have stories of people who escape, you know, like the sort of ways their race might confine them. Um, but it's going to, for your community, like so for your people and like people, uh, black people in America in the aggregate, it's like doing more damage over the long haul than these these really traumatic um, experiences that happen in a minute that make you as an individual feel really, really threatened. Mm. I mean, both forms of racism are completely egregious, but I just, I think it's interesting that the one is so much harder to get our minds around and to see, which has a a kind of, I don't want to say benefit, because I just don't think there can be any benefit to racism, but it provides you ways of um, eluding it because you can still think of your city as something to be proud of um, because it's racism isn't totally determining your experience. Um, anyway, so I think that's really, I like how this story captures both and helps us see both kinds of racism and then makes it really complex what it means to live with both kinds of racism. How did you think he reacted to this second kind of what you call explicit racism like what happens to him as a result of it or how does he hold that or process it 
Yeah, well, I mean, not only does he name it as his first experience, but he says, you know, they started throwing rocks at me, so I had to run. And he, like, thankfully somebody found him and, like, helped him get around, hopefully. But, I mean, you know, it felt very traumatic in the moment as, as he's, like, like, escaping it. Like, it felt like something he needed, like, that required a more immediate reaction to escape. And so, I mean, I think to compare that with this sort of implicit that we're talking about too is that like you know it doesn't the, the the need to escape doesn't feel as imminent right too so like i think i think with this one as as a more individual confrontation it just it's more uh, abrasive it's more uh something that you're dealing with in the moment so so yeah so i mean he he ran <laughs> that's what he did yeah he probably ran back to a place that felt safer to him which would be, you know, his neighborhood there between the expressway and the railroad tracks over at uh, Central or Midtown. I wondered, um, this might not be fair, but do you have any memories of being lost that come to mind? And, like, what are some of the features of that experience? Yeah, I think it's like, I mean, I don't think I've been lost, like, outside. Like, I think my parents were too protective for that. But, um, like, definitely, like, lost in a store, right? And it is. It's, like, kind of disorienting because you're just trying to, like, figure out. Like, at first, I think you're like, well, I could probably get this. Like, if I just keep walking a little bit more, I can probably figure this out. Um, but then you try to just find somebody to help you, right, to, like, just, like, reunite you with somebody that can help you. Um, but, yeah, but I don't think I've ever experienced, like, like fear to this degree. Like, like being lost like that never, never elicited any fear. Yeah, so I was wondering, because I do think, like, probably disorientation and anxiety is, like, what I first experience when I, when I feel lost, and I'm kind of mapping that on to when he's going down these streets totally confused, and then into that, having somebody come who's turns out is not interested in helping you at all, is only interested in, in accusing you and making you even more anxious, um, and then making you feel endangered because they're not only throwing rocks, so there's like a physical kind of danger that comes with it, but there's also um, the name calling, right? Which is like more than, I I mean, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. But I don't think that's really true, right? Like, especially if you're feeling really disoriented already to have somebody then attack your sense of humanity and try to diminish you and make you feel really small. Like that's almost like that experience of bullying is more, it's, I just feels worse to me than actually being lost. And like, so compounding the two of them yeah. together um, and just like running, like, cause it's like, I, I'm thinking of his body too. And like how his adrenaline and his fight flight must be like totally activated and how you have no sort of conscious hold on your choices mm -hmm. exactly because you've kind of you've gone into that sort of um immediate sort of rea reactive mode and um I don't know I, I think as we talk about it it just feels really striking how different that experience of racism is from that first sort of it's it's establishing the boundaries of my life but it's not controlling my central nervous system <laughs> response <laughs> yeah I don't know yeah well I also wonder too like I 
I think I have to admit, like, I think like as like a white progressive person, like to hear that, you know, like this black resident of Gary says that he didn't experience racism until he was 12 years old. I mean, that's like, like that's surprising for me. Like that, like that's something that's outside of what I would have expected. And I wonder like, is that, is that a problem like with, I guess I would name like white progressives maybe mm-hmm. in that vein. Like if other people hear this story and they're also surprised by that, like, is that a problem? Is that something we need to think about? Yeah. I mean, I do think that um, maybe I've already told this story on our show, but um, when I've had students, uh, black students at Valparaiso University who come from the South side of Chicago, and I, I learned for the first time from one of them when I was interviewing them for the Welcome Project that she grew up in a like basically an all black neighborhood. And that was shocking to me. (laughs) Again, this is like really embarrassing, but I feel like there's a similar white progressive interpretation of black experience with racism, that it's been something pounding them, you know, from the time they were born. And I think it's because we, well, I will speak for myself. It's because I, I, I really want to acknowledge like how, difficult the circumstances of this structural racism must be I mean and it because it's so hard to see like I feel like it needs to be really hammered home or Mm -hmm. emphasized Um, but what it seems like it might be doing it um, like unexpectedly inadvertently is like making racism this this force that like black people aren't uh, like they don't have enough agency to like live as as full human beings within and I, I think this storyteller is really stressing to us like this is a full I'm living a full human life and you can throw the n-word at me and that's going to be um, really traumatic but it's not deter- determining my life so I do feel like um, I'm with you on that as a white progressive like I, I think there's some I have to do some inner check <laughs> to make sure that I'm not re-victimizing, in this case, a black person or other people of, of color under this like umbrella experience or term of, of racism. Um, I'm going to go ahead and um, uh, remind listeners that this is WVLPLP at 103.5 FM, 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. And I'm Allison Schutte um, with Willow Walsh. Today on Listen Up, we're going to be discussing a second story, um, Didn't Want Us to Grow Up Thinking the World Was Terrible. And um, this particular storyteller is going to refer to a, another neighborhood. In um, It's actually in the same um, physical barriers that our first storyteller speaks of. But it's a particular neighborhood that's come to be known as Means Manor. And I, she, she mentions it, but she doesn't give a lot of context for it. So Willow and I thought we would try something where we would give you that context before we play the story so you'll have it in the back of your mind. And um, this information that I'm going to be reading came from Indiana Landmarks, um, which is a, an organization that recognizes you know, historically significant Um, areas in Indiana. So this is a blog post that they had written about um, Means Manor. So Andrew Means is going to be the the main architect here, but he worked with a brother 
and they formed Amin's Brothers Incorporated that went on to become one of the largest black-owned real estate development companies in the Midwest. Um, by the 1950s, they were constructing complete subdivisions. In Gary alone, the company built 11 different developments and almost 2,000 homes and rental units. So one of those developments, Andrew Means Park Manor, which is now referred to simply as Means Manor, remains one of Means's greatest marks on the city of Gary. With nearly 200 homes in a variety of modest home styles, including minimal traditional split level and ranch, the $4 million neighborhood development quickly became the preferred neighborhood for middle-class African-American homebuyers. Priced between $12,000 and $75,000, the homes were situated on large landscaped lots, complete with driveways, sidewalks, and winding tree-lined streets. The development included Means' own residence, a sizable ranch situated at the southern entrance to the neighborhood. So again, that's a description from Indiana Landmarks about Means Manor, which is the neighborhood that you're going to hear about from our second storyteller. I grew up in Means Manor in Gary, Indiana. The contractor, Andrew Means, was um, a well-known person in the city. He was a black guy, very successful, and he built probably three different neighborhoods, and they adjoined the neighborhood that I lived in. There were maybe three families that weren't black families, and every family had a bunch of kids, and we all played with each other. And for me, it was your typical neighborhood in the United States. I think the community flourished because everyone there was there under the same circumstances. A lot of the families that came, that lived in my neighborhood, their parents came from the South. And they were there primarily because of the steel mills, because those were guaranteed jobs, that was guaranteed income. Gary was unique when it was first founded. It was segregated. I don't think there was very much black population there. My dad came to Gary from Kentucky. He was four and my mother was eight when she came from Alabama. My parents actually met each other. My mother was in kindergarten and my father was a senior in high school. That's how small Gary was. That's how concentrated the black population was in Gary. They lived in that one section of Gary where black people were allowed to live. My dad went to the military when he was 17. He was a non-commissioned officer. He didn't get a commission because there weren't black commissioned officers. He actually met someone in Seattle during training that everyone called a white version of my dad that, believe it or not, turned out to be his brother that my father found out when he was 60. And when his natural father was on his deathbed and wanted to meet my dad, my father said he wasn't interested because he knew my father existed the whole time. And I think that's something that kind of stayed with him and made my dad the kind of dad he was. He absolutely cherished us because no one cherished him. He was raised by his aunt here in Gary. My grandfather on my mother's side was half black and half white, and he married a black woman. So that's very interesting in Tuscaloosa, Alabama in the 20s and the 30s. And my grandfather was actually killed, allegedly, by a Klan member. Never has been proved, but that's, that's the prevailing story. And it had a lot to do with him fighting to defend his wife, my grandmother. I guess someone either said something or did something or made a comment about the children. And it's something my mother's never really wanted to talk about. She's not comfortable talking about it. 
The type of things that my parents experienced, the type of racism was very interesting. My father came out of the military, didn't even have the right to vote. He wanted to work in the post office in Gary. They didn't hire blacks. My mother worked for um, a Jewish doctor, like babysitting their children, helping them with their homework. And she had to take a bus from his house to where she was living with her aunt. And she had to have something saying, you know, I was working with Dr. Kadal for, you know, whatever reason, whatever they described her duty as. When she traveled to Florida with him, she had to have a document stating she was there with him. So say if he told her, go get some milk or whatever, if she was stopped or if she was questioned, she had a document to show why she was where she was. But my parents would talk about how they felt, how proud they felt. They felt better about themselves when Gary, which at that time was considered a major metropolitan city, elected a black mayor. It was a huge deal in the black community. And my father, he probably always had a chip on his shoulder, but it wasn't until we were adults, his children were adults, when he started sharing his life experiences, as my, my mother as well, and I honestly think it's because they didn't want us, they didn't want us to grow up thinking the world was a terrible place because all in all, it is a good place. Okay, so I actually want to start with a question for you about what do you think she means by typical neighborhood? Yeah, well, I think there's something important, right? She says right before that because she says, and for me, it was a, your typical neighborhood in the United States. So like she describes that as... Um, there's like three neighborhoods around hers. Every family had a bunch of kids. We all played together. And I think with that, she was saying that the community flourished because everyone there was kind of under the same circumstances. They came from the South. They were, you know, working in the mill. So I think it was like a lot of people in her community were kind of in the same situation, right? So there was a lot of people like her and a lot of kids to play with, too. So she felt like it was like your typical United States American upbringing. Yeah, see, I just still think typical is, like, she has this idea of, like, the American childhood. And this is, again, like, to go back to assumptions that we or I might make as a white progressive that, like, I always associate, like, uh, leave it to beaver. So that's the, uh, the typical American childhood. So for me, in my imagination, it's always white. And so I think that's really interesting that she's claiming that, too. Like, that... American dream childhood is what she was inhabiting. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily need to say anything more about it, but I just, I just caught myself being like, again, these assumptions about like, why would experience have to be different based, based on, on race? But uh, what else from this story for you? I think, um, well, she also mentions, which is kind of similar to what our other storyteller was talking about, right? was like how, um, well, she mentions like how her parents met each other. She said her mom was in kindergarten, her father was a senior in high school. But she notes like that's how small Gary was. Like that's how concentrated the black population was in Gary. There was one section of Gary yeah. where black people were allowed to live. This is just a total tangent. But do you think her mom and dad actually met at those times, kindergarten and senior in high school, or if it was like she was just establishing their age difference. I just, I don't know. I find that like really fascinating. I mean, she, cause she, cause she explains it. It's like, that's how small Gary was. So like, it kind of sounds like she means like, yes, five-year-old mom met 
uh, what, how old was he? It's 18, 18, 17, 18 year old dad, you mm-hmm. know, like maybe at the church picnic or something. I don't know. Anyway, again, throw away. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think that that still speaks to like, again, like our other storytellers talking about these two physical barriers. Like, yeah, it's like just these neighborhoods, these neighborhoods that Andrew Means created, right? And they're living in these communities together. So yeah, I think that, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we know from what she tells us, but I think definitely she could be. I also wonder too, like these experiences that her parents had in Gary, like there's this dichotomy for me. Like she's talking about, you know, your like typical American childhood in these neighborhoods and everybody was kind of in the same circumstance. And so, like, for her, maybe as a child, maybe it's because of that, but it feels, like, really positive, right? Like, yeah, she's like yeah, there's a bunch yeah. of kids to play with, you know, there's everybody Sounds in my great. neighborhood. Sounds great, like a great childhood. Yeah. yeah, and then, but then I think about, like, her parents who are, like, occupying yeah. the same time space are, you know, like, I, this could have happened before she was born, we're not sure about the time period here a little bit, but she's talking about, like, you know, her dad was in the military, and, you know, he, but he wasn't a commissioned officer. And when he came back, he didn't even have the right to vote. And her mom has to carry around this, like, documentation, like, saying, like, who she is and where she's going. And so I think there's, like, this, this like, wildly two different experiences yeah. of Gary. And I wonder, like, if we don't know from this story, but I wonder, like, do her parents hold the same sense of, like, we're living in a typical community, like, it, like, do they hold that same kind of positivity that she does, this outlook of their community in Gary, even when these things are happening to her parents? Well, I think it's interesting the Indiana Landmarks description of Means Manor neighborhood talks about it as, like, the aspirational neighborhood for middle-class blacks in Gary. And um, I feel like there's this... I, there, I, I, what I'm imagining is that her parents move into that neighborhood, which couldn't have happened before the 1950s because that's when they were starting to be built. So it's somewhere in like mid-50s at the earliest into the 60s when they would have moved into that neighborhood. And that if, it, if they were middle-class black, they would have established themselves in some sense by then, which doesn't mean that like her mom isn't still carrying documentation around. But um, it does make me feel like maybe at that point, again, I'm projecting that there would be this kind of like sigh of relief like we've achieved the american dream now and this is what we're going to be able to give to our children so i wonder if by the time they move into that neighborhood if they do agree with their adult daughter who calls it a typical american um is that what she says typical yeah typical neighborhood in the united states Mm -hmm. but it is striking how different her experience growing up is from from their experience growing up. And I think it's worth mentioning some, again, some of the other things that happened to them um, in terms of the racist experiences that they had that they were trying to shelter their kids from. So what were the other, some of the other uh, experiences of racism that, that these, that she gives us here in this story? Yeah. Well, she also talks about her grandfather, right? So she says, like, you know, this is Tuscaloosa, Alabama in the 20s and 30s. And the story is that her grandfather was killed by a Klan member. She says it's never been proved, but that's the prevailing story. And also it's something that her mother never really wanted to talk about. And so I think 
there's something interesting going on too that I just heard in this like new read through of it when the storyteller was talking about like, so it feels like for our storyteller, there's this typical upbringing in the United States. It feels really positive. For her parents, you know, there was maybe some really like, there's these racist experiences where her dad wasn't promoted and her mom had to carry papers. But you say like maybe once they moved to this neighborhood, that wasn't the case as much anymore. Like we don't know, but like they could have grown out of that hopefully. But then we, you take one more step back, right, to her grandparents. Yeah. Like, her grandfather was allegedly killed by a Klan member, and but her mom also didn't want to talk about it very much. So I think there's, like, this, this like, not wanting to talk about the negative experiences that are happening. Like, the, the negative experiences are definitely happening, and they're prevailing through the generations, as we can see through her stories. Yeah. But also, like, not wanting to name that sort of negativity... Because she says, like, her mother never really wanted to talk about it. And then they also tell, well, she also tells us at the end, you know, that her parents never started sharing these stories until she was an adult. So And until Hatcher had been elected. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the city, yeah. and they had a city they could be, well, they didn't say, it's not the city they're proud of, but they felt proud. Yeah. And I, I, I think that that indicates that they, again, felt like, the situation is changing. It's not just that they want to live a, a better, safer, less traumatic life. It's like they actually feel the achievement of that as they move into this neighborhood, as there's a new uh, a black mayor for the first time of a city this size. And that and the fact that um, Means Manor was built by a black uh, architect um, construction firm like that's huge like this achievement so it's like this palpable sense of things becoming possible for them which then allows them maybe to finally begin to sift through the past and what was more horrific and figure out what they're willing to share with their mm-hmm. their kids does she say that the kids are adults before the parents start talking yeah, she says well, it wasn't until we were adults that we that they started sharing uh, their life experiences, or her dad specifically started sharing his life experiences, and her mom too. Yeah, so that's probably even well after Hatcher was elected then. Mm-hmm. So, is there more? Do you think this is us going beyond the storyteller um, for for why and when the parents felt they could open up about some of this stuff? I think in terms of the why, I mean, I think you're right. Like you mentioned like Hatcher's election. So I think there's like maybe a little bit of like feeling like safer or more like your community is rallying with you and like we got this person elected to like a major metropolitan city. And so I think like in terms of being comfortable, I think maybe like over time, right? So maybe like there's distance from this experience of like her grandfather being murdered and then her parents' experience of, you know, her dad coming back from the military, not being able to vote, her mom carrying these papers, but then them moving into Means Manor and, like, being able to be in this, like, upper-middle-class, like, neighborhood with a bunch of families and things. So it feels like there's maybe more, diff- like, distance between yeah. d- between the pain. Like, it's, it's, still, it's still happening over time, but, like, this, like, this pain of, like, her grandfather's murder... You know, that it, there, there's more distance. And then once you have a black mayor elected, it just feels like 
it becomes a little more easier to share these stories because maybe it's because it's the positives, right? That like the positives are being in this neighborhood. The positives are having Mayor Hatcher as mayor. And it feels like you're kind of on the up and up, I'd assume. So it feels a little bit more, even if it was a long time after Hatcher was elected, like feels a little more easy to kind of share these experiences of the past. Cause maybe you can even note too, like this is in the past. This yeah. doesn't have to be our future. Like look where we are now. I think I think that's true for sure. And I wonder if there's also some other something else going on with this um all in all it is a good place. Like is there some part of her parents that had to believe that even when they themselves either as children or young adults were experiencing the terror. You know what I mean? Like so the parents um in her mind she's telling us this story. The parents protected her and her siblings because they didn't want to pass on the message that the world's a terrible place. They wanted to kind of protect them and give them a sense to enjoy the goodness of life. Um, but it also makes me wonder if the parents were holding on to the hope in the middle of the terribleness that they were experiencing, that there is goodness also available. And, and maybe like our first storyteller, in ways that she, the daughter isn't sharing with us during this interview the parents were also experiencing life as a good, even in spite of uh, or alongside the, the negative stuff that they were having. Again, I feel like this message of um, we don't, as black people, we don't want to re-victimize ourselves. And that would be a message that you and I are starting to talk about hearing as white progressives. Like, how can we name real obstacles that actually diminish or oppress people without in the naming of that <laughs> re-victimizing them and like it's really a difficult line I think to walk either as a white progressive who wants to be anti-racist or a black person or a person of color or if we change the dominant subordinate categories you know we could do it along gender lines or we could do it along disability lines or along sexuality lines like Nobody wants to be re-victimized by their circumstances. It, like, it's hard enough to be victimized by the circumstances at all. Like, let's not re-victimize ourselves. So I, I think that was really important for the parents to, to make sure that their kids had some freedom that maybe they themselves didn't quite experience but had more confidence in as the conditions seemed to change both of their neighborhood and their political system. Um, I should remember to let people know that they're listening to um, Welcome Project Radio. This is Listen Up with Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh here on WVLP. And today we've been talking about two stories. Um, and we're this, the second one that we're discussing now is a woman who grew up in Means Manor in Gary, Indiana, and is sharing some of the um, experiences her parents got around to telling her about as an adult in terms of the experiences of racism that they that they had. So we're trying to unpack that now. And um, I'm going to throw this back at you and see if you can do anything with it. Because um, this goes beyond the storyteller again. But what do you think? Is the world a good place? <laughs> Is that too broad of a question? I mean, that's a tough question, right? I mean... I think I'd prefer to talk about it and like how we think her, the storyteller feels about it and like her parents feel about it. Because I think like, 
I don't know, my sense to infer, like, from what she said, is that if her parents aren't sharing this information with her um, and, until later on, it's like they didn't want to color her view of the world, right? They still wanted her to hold that sort of hope. And I think, I mean, I think we don't know necessarily if the parents feel that the world is a good place, but I think you still want to have that hope, right? Like, yeah. even when you get, like, these really terrible, like, racist experiences, like, you, you can still keep going. You can still have a child who's in a neighborhood and playing with kids, and, like, it feels like it's on the up and up, right? So there's still that hope, and you still want to instill that in them. And so I think for her, I think her parents you know, did make her feel like the world is a good place, despite some of these things that are happening. Like, I know they didn't tell her until later on, probably because they wanted to maintain that, you know, that feeling of hope that the world is a good place. But I I would say that our storyteller thinks the world is a good place. I would say that, I don't know if her parents Mm. would say that. I mean, I think we have small validations along the way, right? Like Richard Gordon Hatcher's election as a black mayor. I mean, I think that gives hope that makes it feel like it's a better place. Like I can thrive here and be a part of this community and be, you know, my community can be a leader in, you know, Gary, Indiana. I mean, I think there's, there's bits and pieces of it. And I think it does get intermingled with these negative aspects, right? Like her father not being promoted as a commissioned officer and her mother's position with the doctor. But I think like it's, it's, our storyteller gives us a combination of these things, right? Like a combination of her good experiences in her childhood and her community growing up. And she feels like that's a positive, typical upbringing. And, and, but she does name some of these experiences that have happened with her grandfather and her parents. So I think it's like, it, it feels like our storyteller is just kind of outlining a couple of these different things, which I think is really important because if we're going to talk about like, if it's important to to sort of name the oppression and, and, and re-victimize, like we of course don't want to do that. So that means that we must need uh, these different stories, right? These like positive experiences of, mm-hmm. of her growing up in this typical American neighborhood. And I think specifically as me as like a white progressive, you're right. Like that's that's like not the first thing I think of when she says like typical American neighborhood. I think of like what I see on TV and the media and that's yeah. like typically white families. So. I think it's important for us to to view these to view or to make space to be able to hear stories like I had a typical American upbringing yeah. that it feels positive. And so I think because of this we can assume that the world is a good place because there <laughs> are people out there who have hope. I mean, I think there are negative things that can that can prevent us from 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 seeing the world being a good place, or that can help us continue this idea of seeing the constant oppression. Yeah. But I don't know, I'd say the world's a good place. I mean, I think especially if we, I I hope I can can get, articulate this, like um, there's this difference between life that's lived like in your neighborhood, with your family, with your community, maybe your church, Maybe you know, you're a place of employment if if that's a good space for you. Where, like the the news and politics, especially today, feels like it's so over determining our lives. But that's probably I can say that because I paying such close attention to the news. But like my parents don't really necessarily, and like the the life that really is the good life 
is not the one that's at this level of, um, you know, what's happening elsewhere and what are other people doing that's going to impact my life. So I'm thinking in terms of politics right now and politicians, whether it's at the national, state or local level. And um, yes, of course, decisions that are made and policies that are put into law, be, you know, they impact our, our, like our lives in incredibly meaningful and oftentimes either positive or negative ways. But like our actual like experience of living, like that's ours, you know, like we make that like on our own in our like small individual lives. And I don't mean that in a, like a, to diminish, like it's like small or tiny or infinitesimal or unimportant, but that it has like a, it's like a, something we can put our arms around, you know, and that we actually do have agency over, even if there's conditions that are trying to restrict us in certain ways. It's like life will find its way like through the cracks, you know, like so that we can actually have joy and beauty and pleasure and humor and love. Like we'll find that. So I think that's sort of what I'm starting to think about with this idea of life is it, it is really, the world really is a good, good place. Like it's at this level of living and loving each other on our, blocks in our homes that um that 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 can be taken away from you no matter what conditions are kind of pressed against you that would that would be the most optimistic reading at least (laughs) i wonder if it's true (laughs) yeah i think so i think there's like i i definitely agree with that i think there's this like and I think maybe we can see it in our parents wanting to wait to share those experiences, too. Like, mm. it's so easy to right, turn on the news right now and, and see stories about, you know, like, Chicago or, like, crime and violence and whatnot. And to, like, and to really, like, solidify yourself in understanding an experience that's not your own and try to, like, put it in a box and put it in a box of oppression, put it in a box to try to understand it more. But I think... Something that we we really get from this story is to is to see that day to day, to see the love, to see the community, to see those other experiences that make up the totality of a human and their full life experience, and to not think of it so so narrowly, because I think there is like a tendency for uh, like white progressives to want to see you know, the negative and, and make other people aware of the negative because certainly yeah. we don't want the negative to right. be a right. reality for people. Right. But I think if we zero in on that and that's the only thing that we're looking at, that that doesn't leave space for all of these other stories and the day-to-day experiences that actually make up someone's lived experience. Yeah. And I just really want to give a shout out to these parents because you know, we find out later, um, the daughter who's telling this story says like her dad probably always had a chip on his shoulder. And I feel like if you've got a chip on your shoulder, that would be so easy to pass on to your kids, you know, like even unintentionally just kind of like complaining or uh, complaining makes it sound like a small thing, but like really, um, unloading, you know, kind of the things that are burdening you. Like we haven't really talked about this part in the story, but you know, that he had a brother, he had a family, like a, a father that wouldn't own, like own him, like wouldn't claim him. And like how heart, hurtful that must be uh, enough to the point where like, 
when that person is dying and reaches out to you, you're like, sorry, you know, like you haven't been a part of my life. You can't, you can't be there now. That's, and I'm thinking about that, that burden that the father, at least, and I'm assuming the mother too, is holding so that they don't pass it on to their kids. And that just feels like such an incredible act of love to me that you would, that you would want to give, like protect your kids to that extent so they could have their own lives. I just feel like that's heroic. <laughs> and I just wanted to, to give that shout out to her, her parents. Um, one last word before we wrap it up. Or are you good? Um, I think my last, my last thought, maybe just to leave us with, um, is uh, when do we acknowledge the positives and, and when do we acknowledge the negatives? And um, is there a time and space for each? And should we, should we think about how we need to remember the positives, even when the negatives seem very apparent and upfront? Good. Stay with the positive. Yeah. All right. So think on that, listeners. All right. That's it for today. Um, and thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Organic Juice Cafe at rootsjuicecafe.com. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. 